Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by a best-selling author of historical and gothic fiction whose books have been translated into 38 languages and published in more than 40 countries. She has also written four works of non-fiction, including An Extra Pair of Hands, which has just been released and is about becoming a carer to elderly parents. She is the founding director of the Women's Prize for Fiction, the largest annual celebration of women's writing in the world and sits on the executive committee of Women of the World. She is the founder of the global campaign Hashtag Women in History, launched in January 2021 to honour, celebrate and promote women's achievements throughout history and from every corner of the world. She also shares the same name, with a different spelling, of a supermodel. Kate Moss, welcome to a podcast of one's own. <laughs> it is great to be here. I'm not, when people meet me, ever mistaken for the supermodel. That's all I have to say. <laughs> there must be times that that has caused a lot of humour, though, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's when taxi drivers come to pick you up and their little faces fall oh. because they've been told they're picking up Kate Moss. And then they always want to say things like, oh, but you're much prettier. And it's go, it's okay. We just don't need to do this. It's absolutely fine. <laughs> I love it. And now let's start at the beginning. You come from a family with younger sisters and you went to an all-girls school up until university. So I think it's pretty safe to say you grew up in a very female-dominated environment. Do you think that shaped you as a young girl? Yeah, well, I've got two younger sisters and obviously my mother was a woman and so my dad was, was definitely outnumbered. But looking back, I think part of that dynamic in the house was also that my father grew up in a very female environment as well. So there was this sense that, yeah, that women ruled it all and we were doing it all. Because My father became very ill with TB when he was a little boy, when he was six in the 1920s. And so rather than being sent off to school, he stayed at home with his mother and his aunt and his older sister. And I think that has also been a part of this female environment that I grew up in. And it, of course, made all the difference because you were never being brought face to face, if you like, with inequalities or people being treated differently because they were girls or boys, because we were just all in it together. So once I went out into the big wide world and started to realise that, you know, I'm meeting people who had been sent to different schools because they were girls or had to do housework because they were the girls when their brothers didn't. It was a bit of a, oh, I see. It's not quite all like this. <laughs> and can you remember the first moment that really struck you? I can remember. My two sisters were younger than me. I was a, a swatty, showy-off, you know, choose-me-please-teacher type of girl. Very frustrating and annoying. My sisters still tease me about it, about how really annoying I was. 
But it meant I sometimes went with my dad to events when he was speaking. He was very involved in church things and with the Freemasons and all sorts of things like this. And I think it was places like that when I realized that, and this is in the you know late 60s and early 70s, that there was one rule for the men who were the guests and the women were absolutely there as wives. They weren't able to be members in their own right. And because I did things like went to the girl guides and you know all of these kind of things, almost everything I did was groups of girls. And so it was that, I think, noticing that adults did it differently. It's interesting. And your family was also a religious one. Your grandfather was a vicar. Your godmother is a Protestant nun. And your aunt was this incredible pioneer who campaigned for years for the rights of women to be ordained in the Church of England. And she became one of the first women to achieve that. Thinking back to that time, what was it like seeing those sorts of role models firsthand and watching one of your relatives, one of your close relatives, actually finally being allowed to have a seat at the table in a very male-dominated institution? Do you think that that experience gave you a sense that women can change the world if they want to? I think it did, but I also think, talking to someone like you, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, mm, there are some women who do actually change the world. For me, firstly to say, anybody who's listening who's English, and I, I, I say English very particularly, will know that being part of the Church of England is not really growing up in a religious environment. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a very different sort of thing. It's quiet, it's private, it's part of the social structure of your family life. We went to church on Sundays, but nobody would have dreamt of talking about it in any other context whatsoever. It was, you know, it's a, a private, quiet faith that my, my father had in particular. My grandfather, he utterly disapproved of women being involved in the church. You know, he, he felt that absolutely it was a male ministry. But I had two really significant moments. Firstly, I was the first girl to serve at Chichester Cathedral. And hilariously, I was served at the same time as my boyfriend at the time. And what we were getting up to would not found much favour with the bishop, I imagine. Uh, that, I should say that boyfriend is my husband. And what I was told then was, tuck your hair down the back of the cassock and he won't notice because the bishop was implacably opposed. But I can, Julia, remember standing in the nave. I was 17 or 18 and thinking, I can't say these words. I cannot say these words about mankind, man did this, man is, I, I just can't say these words. And that being a really significant moment for me, because actually I found and still find the atmosphere and the beauty of a cathedral and an old church, it speaks to me. It, it's very deeply rooted in me as that sense of, like Philip Larkin says, you know, that stop, I always do, the idea that a church draws you. But that was a moment of feminism and thinking, I can't say this, where are the women? And my aunt was very, very interesting because she was part of the founding of the movement for the ordination of women. But she would never have called herself a trailblazer or a feminist. All she felt was that she was a priest and that she had something to give, that she had a ministry to fulfill. So it, I had to learn from that as well, that even though she, to me, was trailblazing, that I couldn't put my feminism onto her because that's not how she saw it. So that was an interesting lesson about, as I think we all have, about when we start to find ourselves as feminists. It's like, we don't all think the same. You've got to listen. You've always got to listen to other women and respect the way that they are telling their story, not kind of put your 
excited, you know, radical campaigning views onto them. But it was very, very moving. When we were in the cathedral, Chelmsford Cathedral, it was the second group of women to be ordained. The Bishop of Chelmsford said, between them, there were eight of them. These women have nearly 700 years of service to the church. And that was very moving. But then they had to give somebody the right to speak. And a man got up and he said, it's an abomination. Women should not be preaching. They Christ chose these disciples. He did not choose women. And of course, now I know the Bible is a constructed thing, that many of the books by women were left out. Uh, it was subject to a huge amount of reinterpretation, particularly in the third century, Council of Nicaea. And I now know that you cannot say the Bible says this and therefore. But at the time, I just thought, well, how rude. <laughs> how rude yes. to spoil this day for these women. And in terms of your own sort of uh, steps forward in feminist thinking, you been to school, you've had uh, these influences in the church where you've seen the kind of inequality. You then went on to study English at Oxford and you've described this time as being something of a feminist awakening for you. So what was the experience like and was it at Oxford that you would have first used the word feminist about yourself? Shockingly, yes. I look back and I think, God, I was very naive and, and I was quite young for my age, actually, so when I got to Oxford, I, lots of things happened. So first of all, I went to a big comprehensive school. Everybody locally went to the same school. The boys went to the boys' school that was on the other side of the hedge. I met my husband as he was to become in a joint school's production of La Vie Prisienne. <laughs> we were together for two years and then we went our separate ways and met again on a train six years later. So we managed to have other experiences. So I was unattached at Oxford. But when I got there, I met people firstly from different sorts of backgrounds. And in those days, there was a very high percentage of what we would call public school pupils, so pupils who had gone to paid schools. I went to a college called New College, which I applied to because I mistakenly thought it was a new college. And I had always wanted to go to Oxford. I never even went there till my interview. But it had just been this thing for me, like that's what I wanted to do. And it turned out that New College was one of the oldest colleges, and it had only started taking women that year. And the concession to taking women was to put us all on one staircase because you kind of lived in the college, these beautiful 13th century buildings, and put full-length mirrors on the stairs. <laughs> and that was it. That was like, okay, oh, God, the women are coming. we better have a mirror. There were, I think, 13 of us who had got, gone to comprehensive schools in the whole college. So that was there was a class thing. And secondly, there was a handful of women. So it was completely opposite to every part of my educational experience. But it was great. I had a fantastic time. But once I was there, I started to be reading other types of texts. I had an amazing American tutor. She's younger, you know, she was younger than my children, but at the time she seemed awfully grown up. And um, she was great. And she introduced me to poets like Adrienne Rich, to Toni Morrison, to, to women who were writing about women's experiences, inequalities, racial inequalities. And I joined what in my day in the 70s, the feminism was CR groups, consciousness raising groups. <laughs> and I went along to those and I, I, I just kind of sat there with big pop eyes going, oh my God, I've never thought of that. And genuinely realizing that I hadn't had to negotiate in any meaningful way discrimination because of the environment I'd grown up in and because my parents believed that we should do whatever we wanted and would support us and all of this. And then I became involved in campaigns against pornography and sexual violence against women and spent a lot of time marching up and down, reclaiming the nights and all of the things that happened in the 70s and the 80s. It felt like a joyous moment. But as we all know as feminists, there is 
a loss of innocence that happens then, because once you see these things, you can never unsee them. And it means that you always notice them. I can look back to myself in the 60s and 70s and think that there was a, a piece about not noticing. Of course, we've got to notice, we've got to make it, things better for everybody. But, you know, it was very much going to university and it was like, oh, bam, okay. And so you were very much noticing by the time you left university behind and you started your career working in publishing, where you were for seven years during the 1980s. And at that time, you started getting involved in your union, standing up for the rights of women in your workplace. What drove you into that? Obviously, you'd had the feminist awakening, and I agree with you, once you notice, you can't not see. What inspired you to transfer that feminism into trade union activism and the world of work? It goes back to my really wonderful parents. We grew up in an environment where they believed that your job on this earth is to try and leave it a little bit better than when you found it, that we have a responsibility to other people, that we have a responsibility to care and to reach out a hand. Now, for my parents, that came partly from faith, but it also just came from living in a small village and growing up in a small town where I still live. My parents spend as much time on unpaid work, on committees, on trying to get a playing field for everybody who lived in the village so there was somewhere for the children to play, parish councils running the guides, all of these things. And I can see now that actually it's a different form of activism and they would have never called it activism, but it comes from the same root, which you and I have made different decisions, but it all comes from the same root is if you have a voice, how do you use it to try to improve things? And so once I was in the world of work, it, it, it was very straightforward, you know, thinking, well, I don't have children, but I can see that there are three types of people. There are men, women and mothers. <laughs> Why have we not got childcare facilities in this massive publishing company when at that stage, half the people in charge were women? And it was that time of feminism where and I look back and I wish I had seen it earlier, but where there was the idea that in order to be successful as a woman in the world of work, you had to pretend not to be a woman. So it was the days of, you know, power suits and you could have a broken leg, but you'd still go into work. You know, you gave birth in the hospital dictating to your secretary, this sort of thing. Whereas, of course, we can all see that actually if we'd all said, you know what, the way women do things is kinder and nicer and more effective. Let's make the male values go and bring female values in. But that wasn't what it was like in the uh, late 70s, early 80s of work. It was very much, you know, the mantra was if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. I was very junior, so I wasn't in that position, but I could see that there was something awry with that. And also I could see that there were quite a lot of injustices in terms of within the world of publishing, the world of arts in general terms, you should feel grateful to be doing this job. And consequently, everybody did unpaid overtime the whole time. Salaries were very, very low. And I didn't have a language to describe it then. I didn't really understand what it is that was uncomfortable. But of course, I learned and now can see that it, what that does is keep it a very white, middle class privileged industry, because anybody who is genuinely paying their way couldn't possibly afford to work in it. It discriminates against parents. And of course, publishing has taken a very long time to recognise anybody of colour and black people's contributions and writers and publishers and stuff. You know, it's a very old fashioned industry. And when I started, it was a publishing company in Bedford Square, white Georgian houses, uh, black balustrades. One of my first jobs, you know, was to take the post in and it was and to make coffee for my boss. 
And it's the days before computers. So, you know, I was trained as a secretary and everything was about tweed and the smell of old pipes and the gentlemen at the top and the secretaries who kind of looked after them. Things needed to change. They needed to move forward. And it was the days of Margaret Thatcher and all workers' rights were being stripped away. You know, unions still had some power then, which they don't now. You know, we can see the consequences of lack of workers' voice, really. So it just seemed a natural extension of what I've been doing at university. You took an incredibly courageous decision uh, to step beyond the industry. And I'm thinking of the moment in 1992 where you're an editorial director at a major publishing house. You're pregnant with your second child. You've just been offered a promotion. But instead of taking it, you jump to the other side of the industry and write what would be the first of many books, the non-fiction book, Becoming a Mother. Now, what made you take that decision? <laughs> Everybody around you must have been saying, take the promotion, take the big job, the you'll promotion. need the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And until now, I've always been the person who worked full-time in our partnership and my husband worked part-time. Well, the thing was, you see, I was offered this, this big, big job And I knew that this was the moment. And the head of the company that I was in at the moment was an incredible woman called Gail Rebuck. And I knew that what essentially I was deciding was, do you think, Kate, that what you want from your life and career is to be the CEO of a publishing company? Because if you do, you take this job. And if this is not actually what you want, you've got to be brave enough to step out now. And it wasn't what I wanted. You know, I had good secretarial skills. I'd been sent as a temporary secretary to a publishing company. I'd been offered a job. And bam, you know, six years on, I was a publisher. But it wasn't what I'd intended. Concurrent with that was setting up the Women's Prize. The impetus for that had been 1991 with an all-male Booker Prize list. And that's okay because the judges have the right to choose the books that they think most answer the requirements. But the point was nobody noticed. So a group of us said, can you imagine if they'd put out an all-female list? Everybody would have gone, that's outrageous. It's political. It's gender biased. You know, all of these things. And often, as you know, the only thing you need to do to see misogyny and sexism is just to flip it on its head. And so that was starting to take up quite a lot of my time because it took a long time to find the money and to do all the research and, and all of that. And so... I said no. And in fact, we were even more irresponsible because when you said jump to the other side, what we actually did was then jump to your side of the world. The money I was given, we went to Australia and traveled around Australia for three months. Me, pregnant. I've been sick everywhere in Australia. That was delightful. Um, and with a two-year-old, we just thought, you know, this is the moment. And then came back and thought, oh, my Lord. And the f so my husband trained, you know, was working as a, a teacher. And for the first year, we had We survived on £5,000 in that first year and a half with two children. And I still don't know how my husband made this manage it, but we did. It's just that thing. I don't know if you know the, the comment from Julia Margaret Cameron, leap and the net will find you. That sense of, okay, Kate, you've got to, if you're going to set this women's prize up, do it. If you want to start writing, do it. Do it before you're too set in your ways, before you can't say no to the company car and the furniture and the all of this sort of stuff and it, it was it was tough but it was okay <laughs> in the end it was okay <laughs> it, it was okay in the end but wow <laughs> what a jump yeah. so do tell me about the women's prize for fiction you obviously were motivated by this all-male booker list and I agree with you if you flip it on its head people would have been uh, writing around about it 
when you set the prize up, though, so motivated to do it, you set it up, you got a lot of pushback, including comments like, and I'm quoting, if women were any good, they would win the real prizes. How did you cope with all of that? By nature, I'm pretty chirpy. I've always been what I call a positive campaigner. You know, again, it goes back to my background. You know, if you think something's not right, you've got two choices. You can moan, which is pointless, or you can do something. And for me, it was very straightforward that we've, we thought this was the right thing to do. And I believe that completely. Do I think in, you know, that day and age, the early 90s, it should be necessary to have a prize for women to honour and celebrate, amplify women's voices because they're being ignored by the real prizes? Obviously not. It's pathetic. But if that is the situation, then what are you going to do about it? And so although there were, there were sensible objections, which I respected from older women who had spent a lot of their life campaigning for women to be admitted into male spaces. So for many of those in the first instance, they felt it was a retrograde step, taking women out again of the major spaces. Others just daft, just not paying attention to the figures. And at that stage, when I was doing the research, 60% of novels were authored by women and some 75% of novels were bought by women, but fewer than 9% of novels ever shortlisted for major literary prizes were by women. And consequently, what you can see there is that there wasn't a problem with access to market. What there was a problem with was the honouring and respecting of women's work, that women's writing is women's writing. And this, which is done by people with beards, is literature. So that was really what was at stake. And we thought, well, we've got to do something. And the irony is that by setting up a prize to honour and celebrate women's writing, the one metric that can't be applied to the work is that it's by a woman. And when I was doing all the research in the first instance, you would often see if there was a woman on the bookish list, it would say, and the woman on the list, as if she represented everybody. You know, you will have had this 100,000 times. Whereas the men were allowed to be artists in themselves and the women were a category. And so oddly with the Women's Prize, it meant that they could only be judged as artists because that had been taken away. And it was really quite extraordinary. When, when I stood up to announce it in 1995 at, in London at the ICA, Institute of Contemporary Arts, I gave a really energetic and passionate speech because I believed it. We'd got huge amounts of private money coming in from the mobile phone company Orange. I genuinely thought that the entire world would be like a Bruegel painting, that they would throw their hats in the air and everybody would be going, this is amazing, all this money going to writing. And so I delivered this very enthusiastic, naive speech in this context, because you know, it felt joyous to me. And then a hand went up at the back of the room. I didn't know the press then. I, you know, I didn't know any of the journalists and I didn't know that this guy was from the newspaper, the Daily Express, which is not known for its feminism or its desire for equality in any shape or form in those days. And he put his hand up and he said, yes, I said, any, any questions? And he said, yes, are you a lesbian? <laughs> <laughs> and that was the very first question. And at that moment, I was like, oh, this is not going to go quite as well as I thought it was going to. And for the next months, as, uh, as the... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. First prize was getting going. It was unbelievably hostile. How would I have coped in this day and age where they can get at you all the time with social media platforms where we know women are routinely threatened, issued with death threats, rape threats, all of these things. In those days, they had to find your number and ring up your landline. So although there was a lot of very negative press and every interview I did, they would put someone on against me and they would almost always try and find a woman. Because, of course, that narrative of women can't agree. You know, men can agree to differ and that's being leaders. But when women disagree, it's our oh, women can't get on, you know. And it was very interesting. Quite a lot of them, the women would come off air and would, when they'd taken their microphone off, would say, actually, we think it's a great idea. But my editor said I had to come on and talk against you as if I was going to admire that more. Whereas you think, guys, seriously. But if you believe in something, you just have to shut the noise out and you just have to kind of go on your way and believe that it's the right thing. And I had a very significant moment that helped when I was feeling quite low about it. You know, I had two young children and it was remorseless attacking. But as I say, nothing to what women go through now. And I rang up the person who was the anonymous donor. The prize money is anonymously endowed by a woman who was then in her 90s. And the prize statue that we give was also donated to us by a sculptress, as she called herself, Grizzle Niven, who was actually the sister of the actor David Niven. So two much older women had given me these things to get the prize going in the first place. And I was worried about our donor, thinking, thinking that she would feel, she'd be reading this in the paper every day about what a disaster it was, second rate, lots of jokes about it being the lemon prize, horrid, horrid stuff. It was the only time I spoke to her directly. I said, I just wanted to say, I hope you're not in any way regretting supporting us because we really believe this will make a difference. And we really think it will transform how people think about writing by women. And it's international and race is not a category, country of residence or birth, not a category. The only thing you've got to be is a woman writing in English. And she, there was this silence. And she said, oh, my dear, we went through much worse when we were trying to get the vote. <sighs> And then that taught me something about age as well. Don't assume that older women, you know, need protecting. They've, they've seen it all. They've done it all. Thanks to them, we're our, we are where we are. And at that moment, I thought, yeah, bloody right. And now it is the world's biggest annual celebration of creativity and writing by women. And it makes a difference because in the end, so much about the narrative about women is about inequality and injustice and the problems that women are facing and the way that history goes backwards as well as forwards. And what the Women's Prize does every year is celebrate excellence. It's about celebration. And that matters a great deal. It most certainly does. Now, turning to your own writing, obviously you'd made this jump into being an author. You'd written a non-fiction book, but you've moved on and written many wonderful historic novels, but also Gothic thrillers. And Gothic literature has long been a feminist tradition. It first rose to popularity in the late 1800s at the same time uh, that there was a wave of feminist activism and was popularised by female authors like Anne Radcliffe, all of which was very unusual for the time. What attracted you to this genre? Do you know, I've never been asked the question quite in that way before, and it is a really good question, and what is the answer? No, I mean, <laughs> I, the thing that my Gothic and historical fiction has in common I'm a storyteller. What I love is someone to say, I couldn't put it down. But at the same time, at the heart of both of my types of fiction is telling unheard and underheard women's stories. So it's history with the women put back. And as you say, absolutely right. 
in Gothic fiction, there was a very strong female tradition in writing. Now, Anne Radcliffe, who you mentioned, she was the the writer of her day. She was the J.K. Rowling, the Matt Haig, whoever you want, you know, the James Lee Patton, whoever you want. It's nothing to do with their styles, but just that sense of people that are bigger than being just a writer, that everybody knows who they are. And she was huge. And one of the novels that I always adored was Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, published in 1818. It's often misrepresented, I would say, as a novel about man (laughs) playing God. But actually, it's a novel about displacement. It's a novel about what happens when love is withheld. It's a novel about science and disease. And it's a novel about those who don't have a voice. Because in the end, Monster, he wants to be part of things and to live as part of things. And when he is told that this will not happen, that is when he kind of thinks, well, I will destroy everything. All of the things for me at the back of my writing, my nonfiction as well, is the first inspiration is place. So it's a combination of this sense of female writing sensibility, but always for me, it's about the place. And in Gothic fiction, place is a character. For me, it was going to Carcassonne and falling in love with that part of Southwest France that inspired my historical fiction. And then with my Gothic fiction, when I was a child growing up here in Sussex, I've always been very interested in folklore. I've always been very interested in how women's stories are seen as folklore and men's stories are seen as history. And that's my big new project with women in history and the book and television I'm doing now. So the Gothic fiction, I wanted to do the same thing, was to write traditional Gothic fiction, but with the woman as a hero. So not waiting to be rescued, not essentially being a fragile, virginal creature who, you know, in the end, it's the forces of bad men versus good men, who are going to, who's going to win, who is going to claim the prize. I wanted to write Gothic fiction, where in the end, it was the woman who who did the unpicking of the world and who restored order. And it's so much fun to write. So much fun to write. (laughs) I bet it is. And let's come to your work on women in history. In January this year, you founded Hashtag Women in History, which is a global campaign to honour, celebrate and promote women's achievements throughout history, a truly global campaign. What's the response been and what's the impulse behind that? You're a busy, busy woman. (laughs) Joy about lockdown. I mean, lockdown has just been so awful for so many people and so much of the time. But for someone like me who is a carer and a writer, so I can carry on doing my job, I've just sat here. I've had so much more time because I haven't been travelling anywhere. So the impetus was actually that my latest historical fiction City of Tears was publishing and it had been delayed from the year before and we'd got a wonderful campaign and I was doing lots of theatre tours and you know I love talking about I love talking as you (laughs) have noticed with this interview and it was delayed and delayed and then it was going to come in January instead of, of this year and then another lockdown and I think for many people The lockdown, the third lockdown in January, February, March of this year was particularly difficult, particularly for working mothers, but I think for everybody emotionally, because there was no end in sight. It was clear that we were being, you know, everything was being run by idiots and nobody had any confidence at all. I then was publishing my book in lockdown and that it's it's not much fun. And so I thought, well, you know what, let's see if I can just do something a bit different rather than just now the book's out. And I thought, well, all of my work in the archives and research is always asking the question, what is history? Who gets to decide what history is and who gets to record it? And being aware, therefore, from my years of historical research and obviously work with the Women's Prize and with an organisation where we're both involved with Women of the World, 
that it's incredibly easily for women's achievements to vanish unless there is somebody protecting a legacy. If the writing of history is in the hands of a very narrow band of people, and historically that has been white men in, in European culture and men in other cultures, many of the things that we would think were crucial or people who would think were crucial vanish. And so I thought, why don't I just, as part of publication, launch a campaign to say, tell us about the one woman in history that you think should be better known or who you would like to celebrate. You were nominated several times, I have to say, which was very lovely. You are in my living legend section. Um, Thank you. And uh, Which is great to see you in the, in the real life, li being a living legend. And what was so lovely, Julia, was this, that that was it. It was just like, let's just say yay to some incredible people. But once it went out on social media, it just went berserk. And I had thousands and thousands of entries from women and men from all over the world, recommending women from every period of history, every country of the world, every era of history. It was joyous. I learned so, so much, you know, announced the first 500 on International Women's Day. Out of that, I'm now writing a book, which we'll be announcing in a couple of months time with the, the title and everything, which is absolutely about this. What is history? Who gets to make it? Let's put women back. Because in the end, as my lovely dad said when I talked to him about setting up the Women's Prize, when I'd explained it all to him, he just put it beautifully. He said, so, oh, I see. So it's not about leaving people out. It's about getting a bigger table and pulling up more chairs. And yeah, that's it. That's it. We all have made the world, not just men. I can't wait to read that book, but we do need to talk about your current book, uh, which in a wonderful crossover is also a collaboration with the Wellcome Trust, which yes. I share here in the UK, and obviously the Wellcome Trust has a global presence. The book is an extra pair of hands, and it's about your personal experience of being a carer, and it is just wonderfully observed, just all of the little details you bring to life talking about both the love but also the tedium, the repetition of being a carer. For those who haven't read the book yet, can you explain your life of caring and what you hope the book will achieve? It's called An Extra Pair of Hands because that title comes from my wonderful mother-in-law. I'm a full-time carer for my mother-in-law, known to everybody as Granny Rosie. She's 90 now and she's in a wheelchair and needs you know, my full-time support. But Calling oneself a carer is very complicated because there's a danger. It's a very tricky little word that it changes the relationship between you. And the key thing about caring, providing you're looking after somebody who does not have any issues with dementia or Alzheimer's or other neurological deficits, which means that they might not know themselves or you. And it's a very, it's a very different situation. But in a normal, if you like, caring situation that I'm in, Granny Rosie is still her and I'm still me. And the minute you start to use the words carer, it can unbalance things. And we were trying to talk about it. And Granny said, said in the end, said, well, I suppose when all's said and done, you're my extra pair of hands. And I thought that was beautifully truthful. Then the reason I've written the book is partly because it was Welcome who approached me. I'm not a confessional writer. I'm not somebody who has hitherto really written about myself. My life has been writing about other women, really, rather than me. But care is the biggest social crisis that we are facing alongside the existential crisis in the way of, of climate change. There are now in the UK, even since I published the book, and we will correct the figure because it's changed after the pandemic, 13 million unpaid carers in the UK, 
the vast majority of whom are women. Women have a 50-50 chance of being a carer by the age of 59, which is the age I am now. Uh, the odds for men are not don't get to that until they're 75, which tends to suggest that men care for their partners, spouses, and women care for everybody. And it is an issue that the politicians will not address because they don't think it's sexy. And dare I say it, because the people in this country that are making policy are men who mostly have no caring responsibilities, even if they are parents, that some of them actively boast about not caring in that sort of way. And consequently, even though it was in the Dilnock report was set up to look into social care, cross-party report in 2010, it reported in 2011, social care as an issue to be addressed was first in the Queen's speech in 2015, and it was promised as part of election in 2017, 2019. And yet after the year of pandemic, the Queen's speech comes and goes and it's still not there. So all of these things made me feel I am a carer. I have a responsibility to to join my voice to those saying, what are we going to do in this field? Nobody is suggesting that families shouldn't take a primary caring responsibility. But what about people without families? What about somebody who's trying to care for several people who lives on their own, who have to give up their job in order to be a carer? I'm incredibly privileged. I've got a family around me. All of both sides of the family live nearby. There are many, many extra pairs of hands for me. I'm a writer. I can carry on doing my job from my desk. Many people don't have any of those things. So how are we caring for our carers and making caring visible and valued? It felt, Julia, a really big decision to put my personal life on the page. But in the end, I felt that I had got something to say here and it might make a difference. So when the book published with Welcome, every event that we've done has been with a charity partner to raise money for dementia trust and support for the Carers UK. I'm an ambassador for the Parkinson's Society UK because what's well, Parkinson's UK now? Because my wonderful father lived with Parkinson's for a long time. And you know, I have never had so many letters and emails about a book in my life. It, I, it is the book I'm most proud of. It's hard writing it, going back to my parents' deaths, particularly remembering those days where you just feel useless all the time, nothing you can do. But at the same time, to die well and to live the end of your life well is what living well is about. And it's coming to us all. There's no other answer to this for all of the silly men wasting money, sending themselves into space. You know, it's going to come to us all in the end. And I think, therefore, that writing a book for the Wellcome Trust and being part of that dialogue, which, of course, you do as the chair of the trust, about free exhibitions, about free information, about helping people to live lives that are more healthy and more fulfilling and, uh, you know, being able to talk about positive ageing. My life has been surrounded by older people. I live surrounded by older people. And I know, like we all know, it's the same as anything, that what matters is who you are, not what you look like, not how old you are, but what you do, what you do for other people, how you live in the world. It's a terrific read. Kate, I'm moving now to the questions that I ask each of my guests we always start by discussing some relevant facts. So I'm going to ask you, what's the likelihood that a woman in middle age will become a carer? A woman in the UK has a 50-50 chance of being a carer by the age of 59. Many of those women will be carers to children as well as older generations. A man's odds is not the same until 75, which Carers UK and interpreters being that women care for everybody and that men care for their partners, which is great. There are lots of great male carers, but women care for everybody. In the paid sector, the vast majority of people working in social care are women. 
now the majority of GPs in the UK is majority women. And you see this pattern of low pay and low value, therefore being replicated in both the paid and the unpaid sector. Uh, there are 13 million unpaid carers in the UK. And the statistics on how the pandemic has affected women's lives, working lives and their caring responsibilities are really worrying in terms of women's work opportunities being put back a generation because of this, because many women have been furloughed and then not taken back to work. And many, many women have had to take on caring responsibilities, but there is nobody to now take them over. And we have an aging population. And so this issue for women's lives is, is very, very significant. It's why we need to address it now. Absolutely. What's the worst misogyny you've ever had to deal with? It's in the days when I was more physically a campaigner. I, I, I find big crowds quite intimidating now. Now I'm older. But in the, my young days, I was very, uh, I liked, you know, I did a lot of the marching and things. And I think it was being at Greenham Common in the 80s. There was a period of time when embrace the base was what it tended to be called. Like there was a very strong strain of opposition to American missiles being on UK soil. And a lot of it was led by women, the peace camps and the different colour gates around Greenham Common in particular. And I never lived there, but I was one of those who went from time to time for the big events. And it was not even the misogyny. It was the real hatred and despising of women that I'd never really experienced close up before. So standing around the wire with the guards on the other side and an endless stream of sexual abuse, comments about what they were going to do to us, that kind of thing. Now, many women have lived in environments from very young. That We have girls and women living in refugee camps. We know that many people experience these things from the tiniest of age. Again, very privileged to have been in the position where I had not had men talking to me like that. Obviously, people calling out in the street, nasty comments and things like that. But you kind of, you do that thing, you ignore it. But being in that environment where we were there for a purpose. So you just stood there and listened to this vile, sexually aggressive, threatening, belittling. And then I think it was what I realized, the level of real fear many men are brought up to have for women. And the way that they deal with the fear to despise and to genuinely want to destroy women. And of course, we know the figures of sexual assault and sexual violence and two women a week killed in the UK by their partner. We know these things objectively. But when you are there in that environment and that changed how hard I campaigned, it became less academic and more. There are women who are putting up with this every day. And that's when I started to be part of Reclaim the Night and campaigns against pornography and the way that men's views of women are distorted by the images that they're shown. If you had all of the power in the world and you could change one thing for women, what would it be? Well, in terms of the things that you could change, we'd all say the same, I suspect, equal pay. Because in the end, follow the money. We all know that however much you look back into the 1970s and the Equal Pay Act and all of these things, the objection to the Equal Pay Act is not ideological in most cases. It's companies not wanting to pay the women as much as the men because then they've got to pay more money. So... I do think that fundamentally that women's economic equality is essential to changing things. We've just been talking about care. It's about women having the ability to make choices that are not dictated by other people. So absolutely equality of pay. And in all the countries where women are not equal under the law, obviously equality of citizenship under the law. 
And that goes through everything, the right to vote, very particularly, very worrying trend. I'm sure you agree at the moment that women's rights to their own bodies are being rolled back again. So we see that history isn't a great march to the glorious kingdom. It goes backwards and forwards. History is a pendulum. And we always need to be vigilant. But in the end, it's about women being economically, physically, socially and legally independent of men. And then, of course, it's easier to build a world that is equal, where everybody is judged for what they do and how they behave rather than what they look like. Virginia Woolf says, this is an important book, the critic assumes, because it deals with war. This is an insignificant book because it deals with the feelings of women in a drawing room. Kate Moss says? Kate Moss says that without the women in the drawing room, there'd be nobody fighting in the first place. It's all about possession. It's all about being seen to be active. In the periods of history I write about, the men were away at war. Everything about society was run by women. But of course, that's left out of the books, because then what would be the point of fighting in the first place? You know, my novel, The City of Tears, which is the second in my series of four novels, set against the backdrop of the French Wars of Religion, the men were not there. So everything, the book binding, the bread baking, the building the buildings, education, engineering, it's the women doing it. So Virginia Woolf is, is right, and that's back to why it matters to write the women back into history, because the story of history, we're told, is very partial indeed. It most certainly is vital. I'm looking forward to your contribution to that, and thank you for such an incredible conversation. Thank you. So lovely to meet you. been listening to a podcast of one's own with julia gillard from the global institute for women's leadership at king's college london if you want to learn more about our work visit the global institute for women's leadership website and sign up to our updates this podcast has been produced by connie blafari and james miller with kings online with editing by nick hilton if you liked what you've been listening to we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider We're always looking for feedback and it really helps people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.